0: since I've gotten here in Tucson, and some people kind of look like a dog. They kind of tilt their head sideways and look quizzically at me. What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast,
1: where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions expressed are those of your host and our guest. Today, we sit down with Fire Chief Chuck Ryan from Tucson, Arizona, and we talk about his path uh, through law school, becoming a lawyer, playing hockey, the lessons learned while skating on the ice, and the trajectory into becoming a fire chief, and so many more things. Please enjoy. So yeah, so Chief Ryan, thank you so much for being on the on the Fireground Fitness podcast. Let's let's talk a little bit about your journey in this. Uh,
0: in this game. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. I started in the fire service uh, as, as a volunteer originally uh, in Fairfax County, Virginia, because Fairfax, even though it's a large metro department, it's it still calls itself a combination organization, meaning that there are volunteer staff. The, the baseline community protection is covered 24-7, 365 by county employees, career firefighters and paramedics. But there are... Augmented, augmented by by volunteers. volunteers. Yep, and and it's morphed over time. Back in 1991, when I got into this, um, it was volunteers would put frontline units in service again, supplementing the baseline. Hmm. Um, It's morphed over time. Now it's it's a little bit of a different. Uh, model it's more like uh large event coverage, right or uh mm. you know when there's a concert Planned or uh, yeah, those sorts of things so um but but anyway, that being said uh so i I got into this as as a as a second career. Um, I was an attorney, I still am an attorney i'm not disbarred, I just don't practice anymore <laughs> but uh i I really found uh I was not happy doing what I was doing. Uh, and so, I wanted to do something super different, and I'd had a little bit of a, a background in public safety. Um, when I graduated college, I really had no skill set, so to speak. I played ice hockey in college, and I was a poli-sci major, which my dad, uh, you know, rest his soul, said was, a, like, majoring in pre-unemployment. <laughs> so, and so, you said, that's for me, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. So, I took a whole bunch of civil service tests, and uh, I actually got a commission to the New York State Police Academy. Okay. Uh, and went through that and, um, worked as a New York state trooper for a brief period of time. And at the same time I had taken, I, I knew I wanted to further my education beyond a bachelor's at that point. And so, um, I'd taken a lot of, you know, the, the GRE and I'd taken the LSAT to, for law school. My dad was an attorney and I got, I happened to get into law school. So I knew if I didn't go back to school I knew myself and I knew my my own self-discipline or lack thereof and I knew if I didn't go back to school then I probably wouldn't do it mm, so yeah. I resigned the commission I got into law school and I went to law school uh, and I, I practiced law for full-time for about seven years um, and just decided this was not for me, you
1: know, yeah. just, what well, type of law did you find yourself practicing?
0: Um, so interestingly, and this is part of what kind of shapes, I think, how I've gotten to where I am. Uh, I, I was working doing aviation law, aviation litigation, uh, working for a, initially worked for a firm in the Rocky Mountain West. When I graduated law school, I went to Pepperdine. I graduated and uh, got a job offer from a law firm in Denver. Uh, and so that firm did a lot of work in the Rocky Mountain West in the aviation litigation field. Uh, defending aircraft manufacturers, component part manufacturers, um, airport authorities in tort litigation, personal injury litigation. So, somebody has a mishap with an airplane, pri- primarily there it was private airplanes. Um, you know, the survivors would sue. We'd represent mm. Beechcraft or Piper or Cessna, you know, directly. So, so
1: let, let me ask you this. So, when the types of litigation is it usually related and this might not even be a fair question but is it usually related to mechanical type issues or maintenance and and tracking of maintenance like where does where do people lose these lawsuits
0: um uh you know interestingly the the when so very few of those cases uh, it's not a win-lose thing a lot of those cases uh would never really go to trial Mm, right they'd they'd settle out of court um and there's a lot of the talk goes into it right the cost of the cost of the lawsuit versus what it would cost to settle, those sorts of things. Um, but where, where we saw, where I would see uh, organizations really in jeopardy of losing were they to go to trial um, was when they didn't follow their own policies, their mm. own, own internal policies, whether it was a maintenance policy, whether it was a flight crew policy, whatever, there was usually some policy breakdown occasionally it was the machine was the issue right the, the the actual mechanical thing but more often it was a human component somewhere either a mistake made or a policy not followed right um and, the, and then
1: yeah well, you know, which manifests I mean. itself in a mechanical error somewhere it, right
0: often quite often yeah. yep which, exactly you know,
1: fall, the plane falling out of the sky or what have you <laughs> right
0: but the, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did that, and uh, while it was really interesting, like it was, it's intellectually interesting work to me. Uh, I'm sort of an I, I'm an av- aviation geek. I love airplanes. I have a pilot's license, although I haven't flown in decades. Yeah, it was really interesting work, and so I I wound up. And you're gonna say, "How well? How'd you get to Virginia from Denver?" Um, I I was co-defending a client in a case uh, in rural Colorado, a helicopter crash case, and the manufacturer bell bell helicopter i we were doing a we have my firm had a component part piece to this um was represented by a washington dc law firm and uh we're down in this little place called delta colorado and uh this lawyer from dc we we tried this case and actually prevailed we prevailed we were no liability for the aircraft manufacturer for the helicopter manufacturer the component part piece but he said hey you know have you ever thought about moving. We, you know, we have, we're a growing firm, blah, blah, blah. So long story short, real short, I I find myself in, in Washington, DC, you know, moving from Denver to Washington, uh, to practice law and, and that firm, same aviation type work, but bigger clients, um, major airlines, um, worked on some, thank goodness there hasn't been a major us civil aviation disaster in a long time, but worked on some very high profile, uh, airliner accidents, um, representing either the airlines or a component part manufacturer primarily, uh, in, in defense of these cases. And it was cool. I got to meet some really neat people, especially expert witnesses in that realm or yeah. really interesting people. Um, but I, I, I just, you know, th- keeping track of my time every day, the billable hours, it was a big firm, the big firm politics. It just was, great people, but just not for me, you know? And, uh, I fate had it. I, I lived next door to a guy. He's passed away now, but uh, he was close to retirement then, but he was a captain in Fairfax County. And we used to hang out on our respective decks and, you know, drink some beers and burn some meat on the grill and stuff and tell stories. And I talk about the cases I was working on. He talked about the fire department and, and he said, you know, you'd be really, you'd you'd be a good firefighter. You'd be a good fireman. And I am like, I never even thought about it you know and i said eh, i could you know
1: so that's so that, were you in your like mid to late 20s at that point
0: uh yes 29 30 ish okay, yeah so so um that's 1990 ish and uh i said i so i said you know he might have something there so I, uh, just for grins just to like dip my toe in the water i said i'm gonna i'm gonna go through the volunteer route here i had time to do it uh got my emt Uh, and kind of got my taste for emergency response work and just it, it, I really enjoyed it. And so, uh, two and a half years later, uh, I said to myself, I said, you know, I, at that point, and again, I was working with great people and I still stay in contact with a lot of the guys and gals that I practiced law with back there, but I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I'm ready to go open a bait shop in the Bahamas or something. (laughs) I couldn't, I just didn't want to do it anymore.
1: Let me yeah. ask you this about legal work: Is yeah. it as bad as it looks on television, where they're putting in eighteen-hour days, and, it can and when be. they're working cases? And oh, stuff? yeah, it can be.
0: Yeah, yeah, it can
1: be really. It hard. seems, it seems, I mean, really stressful and exhausting. I know they get compensated very well at times. Yeah, um, but man, it seems like the the work is never ending, right? And pretty rough.
0: Yeah, and it's 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 a different kind of competitive pressure, right? Especially in in a larger firm, right? Mm-hmm. There's people are jockeying because they want to be able to be considered to become a partner in the firm, that sort of thing. There's no, you know, there's no clear promotional path. And, mm-hmm. you know, so there's people who would, uh, and I don't, I wouldn't say I worked with any of them, but I know there are people out there that, I mean, they would like, you know, cut your Achilles tendon to get to ahead of you and, right. you know, and people just billing crazy amounts of hours. And then, and then the pressure from, I mean, it's, it's a for-profit business, right? Right, so, right. Uh, the, the, the bottom matter, line really matters. Yeah, yeah, so your billable, you know, the billable hour thing becomes the god, and, you know, mm. tracking every minute of your day. It's It sounds like, what's the big deal? But it's exhausting, man. Right. <laughs> it really is. And right. there's a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, so anyway, so... Um, in, in uh, mid-93, Fairfax opened up their hiring list after a while of not hiring. And I said, you know what? Why not? I'm going to roll the dice and go for it. And uh, six months later, January 24th of 1994 was my first day of uh, career rookie school <laughs> and nice. at 31 years old. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's awesome. So, yeah. so so were you still skating at that time?
0: I was, So, yeah. So
1: let's talk about hockey for a little bit because you mentioned that. You dropped yeah. that in there and then we moved right on. Yeah. So you played collegiate hockey I did and so you must have been you must have grown up playing hockey I did
0: I grew, I grew up in upstate New York okay. actually Albany New York and uh, there wasn't a lot to do in the wintertime. I'm not built for basketball <laughs> so I did wrestling for a little bit but I really I really fell in love with ice hockey and yeah. uh, I've been pl- I had been playing since I was probably six or seven years old nice right up until probably I stopped skating stopped playing competitively about five years ago six years ago.
1: You still play at all? No,
0: not now. No, not now. Now the the risk of injuries too high.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a breakover point where you're like, okay, I could, I could, uh, I could twist an ankle here and it would ruin my life. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I um, I have a funny hockey story. When I was uh, eleven or twelve, we I moved to Toronto, Ontario, uh-huh. and in Toronto, it's very cold, very snowy, oh, yeah. and they would plow arenas in the park. So they would just take the snowy, snowy fields that were once soccer fields, they would plow it and then create little arenas and pour water down and and create little skate parks. Mm -hmm. And so we'd go out there and play, you know, pond hockey, if you will. Sure. um, Every day. And one day I was skating until I was frozen. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, it's time to come home. And I sat down and my hands were so frozen and my skate laces were covered in ice and I was all alone. I couldn't get my laces untied, oh. and so I sat there for like thirty minutes, miserable, trying to warm my hands up, frozen to death at twelve years old at like it was it was pitch blackout, so it was probably like seven yeah <laughs> right right, was, yeah um anyways, that's my sad story <laughs> and it, it's really pathetic, but it uh yeah yeah it's, your your it's hockey fun. career was much more illustrious than mine, <laughs> so you so you went on to play. Uh, in college, did you go like on a scholarship or was that, um, just for fun?
0: No, it was, uh, it was then, um, a division three, I forget three double a school or something. It was, I don't even think division three hockey exists anymore. It's now (laughs) they get lumped in with something called the American collegiate hockey association, the ACHA, but, um, so no, no scholarship or anything. It was just, uh, just a passion.
1: So, so what's something you learned on the rink that you reflect on that has affected your
0: your life um you know for me it was the teamwork thing i didn't i never did cub scouts boy scouts any of that stuff it was it was the teamwork led by good coaches i was i was really fortunate to have some really good coaches mm. over the course of my development as a player uh, right up through the collegiate level and uh yeah it was really the value of working as a team because i never really other then that didn't work in a team environment um you know in in the law environment ultimately you get to the you have litigation teams right but then i then it was i I didn't do baseball right Mm. i was um so it was hockey was the team thing for me
1: yeah there's there's something about hockey too the the speed at which it moves um you have to be anticipating each other and getting in position like that Unspoken communication that has to happen with a look, a glance, a movement. Yeah, yeah. Really is an amazing factor um, that's played into that. I uh, we went, we just took the family skating a couple years ago, and I remember walking into the arena and just the. There's a certain smell. Yeah, yeah. In a hockey rink, that it just transported me back to my childhood, and. um, Yeah. In the trauma of being (laughs) frozen, (laughs) frozen on a (laughs) pond in Toronto. (laughs) But but there's such you know I I think the value in teams, like it really translates, you know, especially into the fire department. We talk about small unit leadership and the dynamics of a small unit, mm-hmm. um, particularly in a high-risk work environment, how important that is and how how critical that is to uh, success yes. of the mission and success of the team and, and their capabilities and how they integrate into larger teams on bigger events, et cetera. Exactly. So do you find yourself, do, are there moments that you, you know, when you think back to, as you've come up through the ranks that you reflect back on and and go, okay, that was a leadership lesson I learned that I've carried with me.
0: Yeah. I think, I think, I don't, I don't know if I like hearken back to something in particular from those days, but um, yeah, I'm not sure that I do. I think it's just the overall experience of guiding, leading that small unit or being a part of that small unit on the ice and everybody, you know, all five of the skaters, and the goalie. Everybody's a leader in some respect because you all take turns, right? Every, everybody handles the puck at some point, and right. the person with the puck is is kind of controlling the flow. Mm. Um, and and it's and you really, I think, you learn. I learned the value of that anticipation of you know thinking three moves ahead, so that you don't because you you watch it and you see it whether at any level of play, um, you see even the best players in the game give the puck away and you'll see them shake their head. they like, they know intuitively I should have waited another half mm. a second or I should have passed a half second sooner. They just, it, it's just something you develop. I don't know whether it's innate or not, but that's the kind of stuff that sticks with me, I guess not any particular moment, but just knowing that that's part of who I am. You yeah. Know?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, and I think about, you brought something up for me that at any given point, Somebody is has to be in a leadership position, right? Right. And that can move around the ice. And I think about uh, an experience I had when I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, we we're doing a, a troop movement, and they had given the platoon leader the order. Here's what you're supposed to be doing. And they come in and, you know, however many hours into this evolution, you're out. You're dead.
0: Mm-hmm metaphorically
1: <laughs> yeah 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 right yeah <laughs>
0: battlefield promotion coming yep.
1: and then they would grab somebody and say okay you're in charge right do you know the plan are you have you been paying attention are you tracking the motion of the plan and I think about that as it translates to any sport frankly but particularly ice hockey where things are moving fast yeah are you paying attention to the game as it's going on right now and are we in our plan right what is the plan Right? are we able to execute our strategy if not what's what's compromising our strategy yeah and what's getting in our way and those things you know on the fire ground as a company officer or at any position frankly but let's just talk about that like on the on the line at any given point somebody has to be leading something yeah and even if you're in the back seat, I think I think firefighters have a tendency in the back seat to be like turn their brain off I'm not respond I'm not the captain I'm not responsible today um, yeah. but they have elements of leadership that they have to execute from the backseat. Absolutely. And you have to,
0: even being a good follower is a form of leadership. It's a component of leadership. Yeah. (laughs) Without question. (laughs) Yeah.
1: What does that bring up for
0: you? Yeah. That's, um, uh, to me, that is, that, that, that does take me back to some, some experiences in my prior department. So I've been here in Tucson just shy of five years. I got here in, well, four and a half years. So I got here in September of 2019 um, after almost 26 years in Fairfax. But I, but I, I, I think back to, especially when I was um, on our USAR our team back there um, and, and operating um, in a different way, right? So I, I think I got on the team when I was a captain, um, and retired as an assistant chief from the team. Um, but rank doesn't matter there, yep. right? In mm-hmm. that setting. Um, so you know you have your TFL, your task force leader. You've got your command structure. You know your plans officer, your planning team manager, your your uh, um, your you know your tech specs, all that stuff, and your and your various division leaders, and um, like rank goes away. You know, so so right. as I when I got on the team as as a plans guy, and, and I had a lieutenant. You know, we'd either go on a training, we'd either be training or we'd deploy, either a hurricane deployment or we do an overseas thing. And I might have somebody on in the department a rank or two below me, hmm. but te- they're my boss now, right? Right, and I I I got to follow their lead, right? Because they've got. And they've, they've obviously moved up in the positions in the team to a point where they have technical expertise and proficiency that I don't possess yet. Right. So, you know, and it's yeah. to, to me, that's where it really came through for me. Right. was That. Yeah. It's,
1: it's position and function. Yeah, exactly. Right. Rather than rank and, and, know organizational yeah. authority
0: well it is and, and you know it's, it's here's an interesting thing and i, I don't want to go down too far rabbit hole but one in my we're fir- here for the rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> my first year of efo class i had a guy in my class and i wish i could remember his name i just remember his first name was james but he worked for chicago fire hmm. and a guy had double masters from northwestern university super super smart guy and he was a administrative battalion chief like in their planning division or planning office hmm. but he was a firefighter in rank. Oh wow. So yeah. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. So, you know, his he would work, you know, his Monday through his 40 hour gig as a administrative chief officer. But when he went and worked overtime in the field, he rode backwards huh. and was a firefighter. And I thought, that's really cool because he had a skill set, you know, right. from this all his education that the department was making good use of wherever they were utilizing him. You know, so and yeah. I thought that's really, that was a cool idea. That is.
1: We get so hung up. And we were talking about this kind of a little bit before we hit record. Yeah. Is this idea of the hierarchical pathway through yeah. an organization and how that is the liver die structure. And I, I think we, we probably need to really challenge that and say, well, what what talents knowledge capabilities does somebody bring to the table to the organization or right? how do we get how do they add value to the organization it's not just kicking the door for some people some people bring yeah. you know they come to the department and they're already a lawyer yeah. right they bring a talent with them yeah. and a knowledge base that can really help the organization flourish yeah why would we squ- squish that into a corner and say you don't have place here yeah right? Yeah. We leverage it to a degree. Yeah. And and
0: we need the the door kickers, right? Yeah. That's a super important role. And I always say, you know, not everybody, I I think everybody has the capability Mm -hmm. to supervise. Mm -hmm. Not everybody hones it and not everybody wants it. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, and that's okay as well. Absolutely. So we We need those tenured firefighters. Absolutely.
1: So many times I think and maybe this is just in my dumb head, but we—I I, sometimes I think we go—we only value promoting, right? We only value rank and, and and positional authority. But we need to recognize the value mm-hmm. that that backseat fighter, the senior tenured member mm-hmm. who decides that I'm going to stay in the backseat, brings to the organization. Yep.
0: It's tremendous value. Yeah, yeah. There's that side of it, and then I think we also—you talked about the hierarchical structure. You know, art the new quote-unquote, um, air quotes, new workforce, mm. right? We have folks coming into our departments with amazing backgrounds and talents, right? And yeah, they're probies or boots, whatever. But, <laughs> you know, maybe they run a small business, a very successful small business on the side, or right. maybe they have highly technical skill sets in in their, you know, in their backpack to, that the organization can use elsewhere, but we, we the fire service still collectively kind of, puts a lid on him like, no, 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 you can't, you, you know, you're to be seen and not heard kind exactly. of thing. And, yeah. and that's, to me, it's, that's wasteful, man. That's just, and it, it can really discourage people. You know, I think, I, and I'm not saying we need to get away from the, the, the hierarchical, the paramilitary hierarchical structure. I just think we need to be, have our eyes open and have that um, willingness to challenge the paradigm that, Oh, you must be at this level in the organization before you can, Do X, you know? Right, I I, yeah.
1: For me, growing up, it was you've got to be a captain before you have any other opportunities open up to you. Yeah, is what I what I saw, felt, experienced largely, and that sometimes that brass ring, if you will, is difficult to attain. Yeah, and if you're like, well, I'm being, I have no other choices, I'm stuck here. Yeah, until I get that, and I have no mechanism for getting that necessarily because so competitive, and there's only so many spots, et cetera. Yeah, so. Meanwhile, an organization has a person who can be a tremendous contribution. Yeah, but we we don't allow them to contribute. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What do you suppose? What What do you suppose it is that gets in the way of that?
0: Um. I think in especially in municipal fire departments, civil service structures. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um. There's also uh, the T word tradition. Mm. <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. with, <laughs> which Which is you know tradition is highly valuable, and you know I always say honor the past, but. Look to the future, kind of thing, and uh, yeah, uh, there's there's layers of it um, that that stand in the way um, in in a lot of organizations. But I, you know, but what I so I go back to my buddy from EFO year one, James in Chicago, and I think there's you know CFD is a if if I I don't know that if I were to name the top five most tradition bound fire departments in the United States, I think Chicago would be one of them, right? Yet they're doing something. They're allowing somebody that kind of opportunity, right? So why not everybody else? Yeah,
1: yeah, I like that. I mean, even the fact that he's at CFO as a firefighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That even that, I think most people wouldn't even apply or wouldn't put themselves out there because of that. Yeah, I'm not in the right position organizationally to do that.
0: Well, I think I think the reason. NFA let him in was because he was an administrator because you have to be a chief officer, well, but you have to be a chief officer and have a minimum of bachelor's degree. So because he hmm. had the organizational title, the administrative title right. is how he got uh,
1: and he clearly had organizational support. Oh yeah. So yeah. It, yeah. you know, any endorsement would have come from them for sure. Oh yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. The um so when you think about so let's talk about education for a second. So sure. that profited James profoundly. Yeah. When you think about the value of education, oftentimes in the fire service, many will poo-poo, uh, the
0: value. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Um, I don't, so I think that's silly (laughs) to be honest, right? Um, I'm not saying that you have to have a degree, right? But I think, I think it's important. I think there's value in that. I think what's more important is that people be lifelong learners Hmm. and whether it's a certificate program, whether it's seminars, webinars, you learn something from everything. Right. But if, if you just sit and do nothing, then you're really not, if, if, if all somebody does is sit and run calls, all you're doing is running calls. Right. And I, I don't mean to belittle that, but like, what are you, what are you taking away from it? You know? And, Hmm. and for me, I mean, granted, there's, and there is actually there is another lawyer in the Tucson Fire Department, believe it or not, <laughs> which is which is kind of cool. He's got better billing hours, <laughs> <laughs> I think so. But um, yeah, and then of course there's everybody in the fire service is an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that you can't take that away from. <laughs> but it, it what what I think th- where I think the real value comes, even if you don't get the 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 bachelor's or the master's or an advanced degree, the hmm. the value comes from. You know, reading, comprehending, writing, you know, learning to write well, um, critical thinking, rational analysis, some emotional intelligence, all of that. And that it doesn't it's not just about a fire chief. Right. It's anybody in the organization. And and so you can't I I just I, I have a problem with people who went especially when the opportunities are offered. You know, we pay, we, uh, organizations will pay for people to attend classes, to go mm-hmm. to seminars, like get out of where you are and see what is happening elsewhere other than on Instagram or yeah. X or Twitter, whatever it is now. You know what I mean? Uh, because there are, there's a whole like subculture of internet firefighters kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like get out and see what's going on outside your, your space, outside your state, it's pretty amazing. Absolutely. And, and it really gives you an appreciation. It gave me an appreciation um, for the challenges that other people face. Um, you know, I tell, I tell folks when I used to go to the National Fire Academy for classes, and now I occasionally will teach there, I I would think about the things we would complain about in Fairfax, right? The things that we would just bitch about. Mm. And then you go somewhere and you find a place that's running trucks from the 1980s maybe, and they can barely scrape together three person staffing. And their second alarm, if they ever had a call, one was 40 minutes away and their turnout gear is 12 years old. And we were complaining because ours doesn't, you know, feel comfortable. (laughs) Like, give me a break, you know, but if, if you never leave where you are, you only know what you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an important perspective.
1: The, um, I had the, the opportunity to sit in an ISTA committee, a validation committee, and with firefighters from all across the country, small departments, large departments, and to see the the dichotomy that exists there is amazing mm-hmm. and, and humbling on so many. Yeah, that's like, a really good word. Yeah, I'm like, whoa, I have it really good, mm-hmm. really good. Yeah. And there's organizations, like you said, who can't get gloves, right. right? They're writing safer, not safer grants, but they're writing, you know, AFG grants or what have you
0: to get equipment that I just take for granted yeah you know it, uh, it's you know I, I, I tell so I've taught I've talked to this since I've gotten here in Tucson and some people kind of look they, like a dog they kind of t- tilt their head sideways and look quizzically <laughs> at me but something I learned I went through the uh, naval postgraduate school executive leaders program uh, in Homeland Security studies and one of the components they had, which had it had nothing to do with Homeland Security, but they brought a, a gal in. She was a professor, I want to say at the University of Vermont, almost 100% certain of that. And she taught a segment on appreciative inquiry. Hmm. And I'd never heard of it before. It's the other AI. It's not artificial intelligence, <laughs> right? But what what it is, uh, is a philosophy formed in the business field, the business sector, right, private industry, that instead of getting into this vortex of despair and negativity of everything's wrong, everything's jacked up, we're messed up, this is messed up, like, what are we doing good and how can we do it better, Yeah, right? That doesn't mean it's not Pollyanna, right, like, oh, pretend nothing bad is happening, it's instead of focusing on the negative, focus on the positive, and and the rising tide lifts all ships, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the philosophy behind it. And it's it, it, look, it's worked for major corporations, British Airways, um, Samsonite. I mean, just the the, the number of Fortune five hundred companies that that use this process. It's sort of a strategic planning thing, but they use this AI process, and it's they implement it, and their you, their profits go up. It's, it's really interesting to see it. The air force has actually implemented it. So I, I just, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't profess to be an expert in it and I don't buy into all, every single bit of it, but what I, what I like about it is that instead of the woe is us, woe is me, every department out there is doing great stuff. How do you get the, the stuff that's not going so great better by making what you do well better? right. so what I hear
1: you saying is that this idea of identifying bright spots, yeah and saying, okay, that's going well what what let's repeat that. how do we do more of that or yes. repeat that behavior in other other sections of the organization exactly yes you know, you know, why is you know ops doing so well? Yeah well let's identify some pieces, bring it over here and let's see can we implement that in in special operations or EMS or yep. what have you and, and try to translate those same good things? yeah hmm. I like that. Well, it's interesting. I was actually having a conversation with somebody uh, this morning about tailboard critiques. Yeah, and we were talking about the, the you said Pollyanna before, like yeah, like people nobody wants to say that a fire went poorly. Yeah, and and what's funny to me is there has not been a single fire in my career that went perfectly. Exactly. But yet, when I sit at the tailboard and I hear these critiques. It sounds like everything's freaking amazing. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's an awesome firefighter. And, Everybody and, should
0: be getting a gold medal, yes! gold medal of valor. Yeah. Right. right. So yeah, yeah. so uh
1: yeah. the framework that we that I picked up when I was, you know, uh in operations was uh we go to the tailboard and, and we'd say, Listen, what's something that went well? Yeah. Well, we came on scene, we gave a great report, we identified the size up was on point. Great. What's something that you would do differently next time. Yeah. Right. Not so negative. We'll reframe it a little bit. But the idea is we have to have real conversations about the challenges we're having. Yeah. And um, so it's interesting. The AI piece that you're talking about is uh, is interesting to me because sometimes we do have to have that conversation. But we have to frame it in a way exactly. that isn't so self-destructive. Right. right? Or, or
0: accusatory. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Hey, we're all in this together. Yeah. And so if we're here just talking smack about how horrible the organization is, I'm like, well, what role do you play?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. What, what piece of the, that do you own? <laughs> yeah. It's not
1: just the fire chief's fault. Right. Right. Every one of us is here. Part of this organization has a responsibility. Go back to leadership. Yeah. To lead from where you are. Yeah. So what does that look like?
0: Yeah. Right. Help. Yeah. Help the organization. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people, I, I, and and I, when I when I go to other places and talk, I, I say think back to when the first day on the job and how excited you were, mm-hmm. and remember what you said in your interview, mm-hmm. right? Like remember what you said and remember the oath you took, and if you can't live that anymore, you really got to do some self reflection as to why. Yeah, like is it fixable or not? And if it's not, then don't be miserable. Like, you know, I don't want to see anybody leave the organization, but I don't want people to be, you know, tremendously unhappy either. But why are you so, what's the, where's it coming from, you know, and why? Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's different for everybody, I think. But yeah. yeah, what's, uh, what's, what's been your favorite position in your career so far? <laughs> I, I really enjoyed, um, my time as a battalion chief hmm. because, uh, I, I for let me say this. I have loved every position I've held in the fire service. I really have. Um, but in terms of when I felt probably least stressed, but still, uh, like I was, you know, still engaged in what I signed up to do hmm. was in the battalion chief role. And, and I say that because, um, you know, as a, as a battalion chief in the field, you're, you're still very much connected with your people, right? You're working the same shift, you're in the stations, you know, every, every battalion chief makes what they make of their position. But I think if you do it right, you, you, you show your humanity to the people you're supervising, to the people you lead, you still have to be the boss, right? Yeah. But, but you, like, you participate in the drills and you, you, you get your hands dirty sometimes. And, you know, the organization I came from in, in Fairfax County, we, our battalion chiefs were, um, you know, on, on fire events packed out, Mm -hmm. you know, not the first in chief officer, obviously they've got incident command, but later arriving chiefs, chief officers dressed and packed out and, you know, assigned to divisions or groups or whatever. Um, and so you, you kind of, you're still in the mix, right? Um, and you really have a, I, I think even more than a captain you have the opportunity to really mold people mm. and 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 encourage them along the way you you're you're in a you're you're like a step or two up higher on the on the staircase and you get to see people's talents across you know 50 60 people maybe 70 people depending upon how many stations are in your battalion and you can identify the rising stars and the the folks who are you know, the ones who are going to be the 20 year door kickers or whatever, and that's awesome. And and, and so you really I, I think if you really take the time to engage and I did, I, f- I feel like the people that I had supervised as a B.C. back there would say, yeah, he was invested in us as much as we were invested in him. So I that was my favorite position, I think, from an internal reward probably physically the most favorite position was being an engineer. We called it technician back there, but I, I love driving fire trucks, man. It was, yeah. it was the greatest thing on earth. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, what's really interesting to me.
1: A good family friend who was an LA city firefighter. He retired as an engineer. Yeah. And so he is the prime of his career was like the mid eighties. Oh, early okay. '80s, Yeah. Seventies and eighties. And, uh, he tell these war stories and his, he would get all excited and, and he was telling, like, yeah, he's an engineer. And yeah. he's like, you know, we were getting the pump going, and then you know, mid-fire, the pump would fail. And I'd be climbing all over the truck and securing this and doing that and tightening wrenches on And I'm like, you mean, like, mechanic work? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> because <laughs> these trucks were just in disrepair. Yeah. This is L.A. City in the 80s. Sure. Right? They, had, they, had, they were having a tough time. But what's interesting is when he reflected back, that was the height of, like, the professional engineer was being able to take that apparatus and manage yeah. every piece of it. To keep, keep it alive. Sure, <laughs> yeah, keep it running, make sure the boys had water. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, very true. <laughs> kind of funny. That's it's, cool. It's a great job. The thing I re- hated the most about being an engineer uh-huh. was driving back to the station at three in the morning <laughs> oh, yeah. and everybody's asleep. Except you. And I'm like, right. this is total bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, those
0: moments, right? But but, especially yeah. when it's a, from the far end of your do back to the station. Yeah, exactly. And you get to look and see them all
1: snoozing. Yeah, <laughs> feet up, heads cocked over, drool in their face.
0: It's awful. <laughs> so true. Yeah,
1: <laughs> the worst. The uh, um, what's What's something in your career that has just surprised you that you didn't expect? Mm.
0: I think um what what surprised me, you know, I, what what has it what jumps out to me immediately and without taking time to reflect back over gosh thirty year thirty plus years now, but um the we had an event here in Tucson July of twenty twenty one, uh where uh our crews came under attack uh, by an active shooter and the it what really um shocked me about that was the um it just it it remind it what i guess what what it reminded me of you know there's no routine call right mm-hmm. cuz yeah. it was a quote-unquote routine house fire in a part of town that we have a fair number of routine house fires quote air quotes again um and it just jumped what 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 really resonated with me as I reflect back on that is how, how the world has changed and how our profession has changed since I've been in the fire service. Hmm. Um, you know, I, maybe in Fairfax is a big, is a big place, million people, blah, blah, blah. Right. But we never had, we had, would have crews that would get in fights with people, right? But you never did anybody shoot at you i mean just like drive up to out of the blue and start shooting at you right. and killing your neighbors uh, killing neighbors and wanting to kill you and it, like there's just been this it's it like holy cow this is like a to me another cataclysmic event obviously on a micro level because it's just here in our town in our city but it's happening in a lot of different places too you know yeah. and and so it really resonated with me as as a fire chief like wow Things have really, really, really changed. I thought 9-11, and 9-11 was obviously a watershed moment in, in the fire service. But, you know, on the hyper-local level, stuff like that really, wow. So, like, that's just, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm i rarely at a loss for words, as you know. But that really left me at a loss for words for a while. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Did it affect your thought on risk? Like, the
0: way we manage risk, the way we assess risk? Um nah yeah. no not really um it's more about just overall situational awareness I think in mm-hmm. this day and age um i, I you know we re- reflected back on that incident and i i I don't know what we could have done I don't think anything honestly could have been done differently other than not responding you know right um, there were no indicators well I take that back there were indicators of an issue but because of layers of communication there you know different events different radio channels people there was that sort of lack of overall situational awareness yeah um not a not an any not an individual failure maybe a system failure or just a fact it just happened right so
1: yeah, hey, yeah sometimes it's the the world we live in is so complex yeah. that you can't outperform the way things just fall into place sometimes right. and right. i think we can look back and with hindsight go ooh Here's something we could do differently. And that's good. We have to be able to do that. Yeah. But sometimes in the moment, you just, you know, I'm reflecting back to this one particular incident that happened in my career where the crew is driving down the street and a gentleman just walks out with a gun and starts shooting at the apparatus. Yeah, see, that's crazy. It's just like, (laughs) they didn't plan on that. And and like, that was, they were responding to a call that was unrelated. Yeah. And luckily nobody was hurt or injured. And, you know, this, uh, you know, but you go, Ooh, like how do you plan for that? Yeah, you don't. Right. You don't. But we, I think you bring up a good point, which is this, the situational awareness. I think kind of as an industry, mm-hmm. we need to recognize that the world, the context is evolving mm-hmm. and we just need to continue to really question. Are we doing the right things for the right reasons? Yeah. Um, at the right times in the right places. Right. And, uh, you know, the conversation about ballistic vests comes up and, you know, you can't wear it 24 seven. Mm-hmm. But right? how do we, what, you know, and we just need to get really curious and go, what do we need to do differently to help as we move forward in the, in the, the, the world as it changes, how do we change with it? Um, but to sit here and say, Hmm, we're good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's not (laughs) going to work. No change needed. (laughs) No, that's, yeah, that's not an effective strategy, right? You know, hope is not a strategy. Right. (laughs) The, um, we have to adapt to the environment. The environment doesn't adapt to us, right. and that requires change. It requires change in so many levels. And we are, as firefighters, inherently resistant to change. Right? Yeah. The, the old yeah. adage: firefighters hate two things—the way they are and change. So, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. so how <laughs> do we? How we do we? To. How do we change? How do we change change?
0: How do we help people be less change averse? I, I really think it's by giving people the why. Mm. Um, up front, not not afterward, mm-hmm. you know and and really communicating why we need to turn the ship in this particular direction. yeah um, and not everybody is good at doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, if you you can't if, if you're an autocratic person, you're never going to be able to get the change buy in, right, except from your most loyal people. You have to you have to really tell people exactly why and and sometimes at the end of it you every, you know people you can agree to disagree right you not everybody but i don't necessarily like some of the changes you know my boss makes change and i i don't may may not agree with it at some level but as long as you know he gives us the why the city manager said well here's why we need to do this then i can communicate it like okay here's why we're doing this not not exactly what i would have done i wouldn't say that but in my mind that's on processing right like because you want to ex- present the united front and i think that's important for any leader to do is present a united front not right. not sell the organization downstream just because you don't agree with something think about when you go home i mean you have disagreements with your partner, spouse, woman, whatever, your dog, you know, neighbor, right? It's time but, for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So, um, I think, but to answer the question specifically, I think it's, it's really giving people the, 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 why and being able to explain it, you know, uh, at me kind of meet people where they are yeah. with the explanation.
1: Yeah. I like that. I think that's, um, it, it, it there's a time and a place for the autocratic leader to come in and say, this is how it is. This is what we need to do. Usually those are in hostile environments when shit's going down. Right. Right. Yep. But when you have discretionary time, if you really want people to follow you, they need to understand why they're following you. They need to have a reason to believe in you. Yep. And as much as it takes a lot more work, right, you have to spend the time to help figure out what individuals need Mm -hmm. and, and, and then help them understand how the organization's need helps fulfill their need. Like you have to bridge those gaps for people. That's the work of leadership. Right. And, um, it's not easy. No, it's, it takes it, <laughs> but it takes a deliberate engaged presence to be able to do that. Yeah. Without question. Yeah. Without question. When, when you think about, you know, your career, what are, what's one thing that you think back and go, this has probably been the biggest challenge of my career for me.
0: <sighs> um, interesting uh the biggest challenge i think every position i've had has been a challenge but I'll, I'll i'll i'm gonna share a personal experience here um so i uh i am a cancer survivor i was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 20 january of 2017. uh it's an it was an occupational it was given uh, an occupational status back in virginia to me, that was, wow, that, w- that was a challenge, man. I mean, I, I was 54 years old, 55, I think, at the time. Um, no history of cancer in my family, none of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what it made me think of, well, it was. It, I took some time to process it first, right? Because when you get that call from your doctor saying, uh, you know, we, we found something here and we got to deal with it. Yeah. Um, so, so the, the challenge for me was getting through the, the mental fog of that. And I think anybody who has received a cancer diagnosis will tell you that when the doctor says those words, you have cancer, you stop listening to everything else they say. <laughs> and then you, you have to call them back and say, okay, what did you say to me after that? You said that, <laughs> you right. know, when you get your head right a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it's ex- like, you know, laying it all out for my family, for my coworkers, and then processing it internally. Like, because the doctors were, at, thank goodness it was caught very early through a great occupational physical. Um, but like mentally, like, is this going to cha- change who I am? You know, yeah. like, am I going to be able to continue to do the profession I love? And then you go, the worst thing I think for me, I shouldn't say the worst thing anybody can do. I think the worst advice I got was to from somebody else who'd been through this experience was uh hey, get get become part of this like Facebook group. And and I was like, I did, and then I got out of it as quickly as I could because it was horrifically morbid and sad. Mm. And and these people were, you know, I felt terrible for these guys who were in this group talking about what they were going through. Because all I could do was go there, yeah, you know. Yeah. And my doctor was like, "Don't do that. Like, you're not going to get there if, as long as we take care of this and don't kick the can down the road." And so um, I immediately extricated myself from that, um, and, and and had a really, really awesome support from my wife, my kids, and my department uh, as I worked through it. And you know, thankfully, knock on pressed wood or whatever this is. Uh, <laughs> It's all good, you know, Yeah. almost seven years later, but that was, that's, I know that's probably not the, you know, people will talk about other professional or, or career challenges. That's to me, getting a career, a diagnosis that of, of a disease that could kill you because of your job yeah. was like, it, I never thought it would happen to me kind of thing. Right. And how many times as firefighters, do we hear that from people who have house fires or other, you know, similar crises and like, oh, I never thought this would happen. Yeah. I, I said the exact same. I never thought, never yeah. saw it coming.
1: Yeah. Well, there's something about you bringing your mortality into question. Oh, heck yeah. It, <laughs> it changes everything. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, it's, uh, um, so I had a, a an issue, a uh, tumor in my spine. And it caused drop foot. blood, the whole mm. story. Mm-hmm. And I could no longer run. Mm. And it, you know, running for me uh, was a big part of my life for
0: many, many years. Especially being in the Marine Corps.
1: Yep, that's where I fell in love <laughs> with the running, and it, I kept going longer and longer and longer, doing all these great crazy events, and it was part of my identity. Yeah. And interestingly, I was telling my wife, and we we're hiking. We were going for a hike, and I'm like, I can't believe." She's like, "What is your problem?" And I go, "Listen, I'm just pissed because I can't run anymore." Which yeah. most people would think like, "That's the dumbest thing you've ever said, Rain." Yeah. <laughs> but what upset me. It, well, well, my wife turned to me and she goes, Rain, you're grieving the loss of something. Right. And I didn't, that was the part, the light bulb came on. I'm like, oh, yeah. that's why I'm so irritated because I am I truly lost a part of who I was. Uh-huh. And so when we have these events in our lives, you have cancer and suddenly your life comes into question like, well, shit, if this is work related, yeah. maybe I made a bad choice. Right. Yeah. Right. But then all these great things happen because you were a firefighter. Right. So
0: yeah, reconciling that is tough. Yeah. And it, it took me back. So, you know, so at that point, I'm trying to think what position I was in. I might've been, I was still a deputy chief. I was the, I believe I was the deputy chief of special operations when I got the diagnosis. So I'd been off of a truck for a long time or a fair amount of time. Right. Um, and I thought, wow. I must have made some really poor choices on some calls and I, you know, your mind goes back and I can remember calls where it was cool to leave your mask dangling, you know, you know know what I mean? And just stupid stuff with, double lines of black shit running out of your face and you get your picture taken. You're like, yeah, salty dog. And then, yeah, yeah you got cancer. Like, oh, right. damn it. <laughs> yep. Didn't see that coming. Right. Exactly. Well,
1: and, you know, and we know now so much more than we knew. Absolutely. 20, 30 years sure. ago. Right. So we just I guess we can't beat ourselves up too much. No, um, no. But, you know, but now we know. Yeah. And man, we got to figure out how to uh, mitigate that moving forward. Yeah. And keep keep our new young firefighters
0: as healthy as possible. Yeah. Keep them healthy and, and yeah. show people who are interested in the profession because we've done a great job about educating the world about the cancer risk to firefighters. Yeah, I wonder really how, what message that sends to prospective applicants like, yeah. Holy crap, do I really want to sign on for this as cool as the job is? Maybe I can give back to the community in other ways that are less risky. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. it's,
1: that's gotta be a factor that people are weighing in. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. As, especially,
0: as, especially, I think, especially potential women applicants. Yeah. Um, you know, and what that means, especially if they're interested in having children and stuff, all mm-hmm. the downstream effects of that. And yeah. So I
1: had a uh, Don Bolstead, who's an industrial hygienist on the podcast a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, I couldn't tell you what episode it is, but whatever. Um, we had, She wrote a book that talks about the, it's called Exposed, mm-hmm. and it talks about all the different ways that we get exposed to carcinogens and how problematic they are for us as firefighters. Mm-hmm. And they, she was part of, or she led a study that looked at uh, female firefighters who had had children and how the uh, carcinogens traveled through, you know, our lipids and out your breast milk. Mm-hmm. And so they had these women, um, uh, pumping and, and sending the milk to the lab after every fire. Mm-hmm. And it's scary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now that we know, um, you shouldn't be giving your kids breast milk in the first three days after a fire. So yeah, for all you gals out there, right. Keep that in mind. Um, and read Don's book. It's, yeah. Plug for Dom. I'll have to take a look at that one. Yeah, it's a good little book. And it's a good read. It's small. It's fast reading. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and it's informative, really informative. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. This is a tough question. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. What do you see as one of the greater challenges or or one of the challenges that the fire service faces in the future? You kind of touched on recruitment and retention, Mm -hmm. I think, or recruitment
0: anyway. Mm -hmm. What do you think one of the other challenges are? I I think... um, and nobody cut my brake lines on my car for saying this. I think the 24 hour shift schedule is, Mm -hmm. is proving to be a major challenge to recruitment and retention. Um, doesn't mean we're going to see it change. I mean, there are departments out there that don't work 24 hour shifts. They work the 10, 14 schedule, but not many. Um, and, you know, with all the focus we have on uh, sleep and sleep health and what we know sleep deprivation can do to the human body. And we know firefighters are sleep deprived. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, the can- and the cancer risks, I just think I think we need to start to have a real conversation about what it looks like to not have a 24 hour shift schedule or to offer an alternative to the 24 mm. for somebody who wants that right. Um, impediments to that civil service structures, at least in the municipal environment. Right. Yeah. And FLSA comes into play and how do you, you know, all of these things and, and can antiquated it systems, <laughs> figure out the payroll. I mean, all of it and um, but, but I think really, uh rain to be very honest i think that's a huge challenge for us because we're seeing people i mean i talked to peers around the country and with metro chiefs from you know across north america and and south america and europe and we're we're all seeing the same thing yeah people don't want to stay in the profession they're not wedded to it like you and i are right like in it for in it for the long haul. It's a, it's a way, it's a waypoint on a, on a, on a life map now. And right. I, I don't, I, I don't get flapped about it. I mean, I, I wish, like I said, I don't like to see people leave the organization until they're retiring healthy and well, right after a long time. But if somebody just wants to come and do five, seven years of good hard work for us, I'm good with that. It's okay.
1: So what's interesting is you say that it like other industries that's the thing yeah you come in you work a few years and people are a little bit more transient in their careers yeah and i'm wondering if that's something we need to come up with a model for yeah and or account for it in the systems like hey we know that people there's going to be a percentage of people that are going to come and go yep well what's our plan for those types of personnel how right. do we train them how do we make sure that that pipeline is there for that type of model yeah and and yeah, it's going to take a little reframing of our thought processes. Yeah, because it's uh, it's definitely outside the box of what we currently do sure. or our current expectations. But yeah. it's amazing to me how surprised people are. They're like, "Well, the the um, attrition rate is just climbing, and we're not talking retirements. We're talking people leaving, you know, five and under and ten and under." And um, yeah, it's changing. Yeah, the expectations right. and the organizational expectations or the, the the expectations of the employees is evolving and right. changing.
0: Mm-hmm. So we got to be mindful of that. Yeah, we have to adapt. We uh, just as I think in, in more cases, m- in more ways than not, we have to adapt to the changing workforce. Then the changing workforce has to adapt to us. Yeah, right. If we want to be, if first maintain a sustainable yeah. model, you know. Yeah. Well, I really look forward to your solution. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) when I get it, (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna patent it or sell it or something, and I'll buy that Bentley I've always wanted. There you go. There you go. I don't see it happening. Oh man.
1: Well, with all these things that a fire chief has to wrestle with, um, you know, you talked about the the shooting that happened down here. Yeah. I, you know, we've talked about some other things that you've had in your career, and
0: and you know, what is it that keeps you up at night? Um for me, it's, uh, it's twofold. It's, uh, it's, you know, the welfare of, of my men and women. Uh, you know, I I don't, I dread the thought of getting, and actually I would hear the call because, and my wife kills, it just just, doesn't like this, but I sleep with my phone next to the bed and the alert tones go off for, you know, significant events. But I, I just, I, 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 we we have come very close to one firefighter fatality since i've been here um it's a horrible feeling mm-hmm. as as a fire chief cuz you can't do anything yeah you know you, you're we are doers, we're fixers and when you're the fire chief and you're listening to it on your portable as it unfolds you're powerless and you want nothing more than to be there to help and you can't yeah um so that's that's what really really keeps me up at night is is the safety and security of our folks. Yeah. Um, part part two of that uh, is the safety and security of, of our community and our ability to continue to provide adequate fire and EMS protection to the community with the modern budgetary challenges and everything else. The politics, honestly, it it, it if you not talking about DNR and all that stuff, right? I'm talking about just being political that doesn't bother me. And I think my law training as a litigator, right. I think that kind of helps me in that area. Um, being able to read the jury box, if you will, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and use powers of persuasion. But I think, um, yeah, just recognizing that the challenges, especially in the municipal environment um, that, that are, that are placed on cities today to, to maintain levels of service that are co- that are dictated by standards that you know most places can't really meet mm. um yeah it that's that's what that's that keeps me up is our is our ongoing ab- ability to do it not that we're not do- meeting it but what's it going to look like in five years yeah how do you, you sustain know? it how do you sustain it yeah right. yeah
1: it's it's interesting i'm you know up in my neck of the woods the the, the growth that is happening is so rapid yeah and i'm i'm seeing that as a challenge down road like well how do we maintain using the current model and maybe that's the question is is the current service delivery model and this is heresy right right is it appropriate for the future of our community needs yeah and i think that we have to be willing to set aside some of our current operational paradigms and go okay what if yeah. What if we did it all different? What would it look like? <laughs> right. And you know, NFPA standards and all the other regulatory issues aside, like let's get creative for a second and go how what could we do yeah. to provide the best service to the community? And then go, okay, because frankly, the NFPA and all these other things that guide what we do are often written by us. Yeah. Right. right. So like let's be thoughtful and creative and and curious about how we do this. Yeah. And you know, let's say if money wasn't an option, what would be the best thing? Right. And then we go from there and try and figure it out. Yeah. Um, I think that would be a good exercise. And obviously I know there's people out there doing it. Yeah. And uh, again, I look forward to their,
0: <laughs> I look forward to their solutions. solutions. <laughs>
1: so it's uh well, Hey, let me ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. So sure. we'll sure. pull this to a close. Okay. Um, I have, I wrote down a couple of questions. I don't know if these are the ones I want to ask
0: you. Oh boy. Okay. What is something you believe that other people think is crazy? Something I believe that other people think is crazy. Um, hmm. I don't know if other people think it's crazy. I think they sometimes when I tell people I, that they think I'm a little weird, but I I, <laughs> I really believe in, uh, uh, and, and there's a whole reason I got into this, which I, I probably shouldn't, I won't share, but the whole Practice of mindfulness and meditation. Um, I don't think people think I'm crazy, but when I tell people like, "Hey, I really believe in this," and it's not like I go sit in an ashram somewhere and you know (laughs) want to be a Buddhist monk. It's not that. It's just taking five to ten minutes out of my day, whether it's the beginning or the afternoon, and just kind of shutting everything out, Mm. turning truly turning everything off, and just kind of grounding myself. Just ten minutes a day, man, and it's it is it's amazing the. The difference it can make for you if you take the time to do it. I've I've really come into that in the past year or two. Didn't really believe in it before, Um, but um, yeah. And so when I tell people that, they're like, "Get out of (laughs) here!" You you? like Like, really really? (laughs) (laughs) right? That's funny. Yeah, and like I said, it's not it's not burning incense or anything. I mean, it's whatever people want it to be. But for me, it's just taking that time to kind of get get in and out of my own head and just do a body scan and just kind of reset a little bit. I like it. Yeah. All right. What's one piece of horrible advice you hear people give? Um the 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 one piece of horrible advice would be the just do it mentality. Like just do it, right? We talked we talked earlier about giving people the why. Mm-hmm. And if you're of that just do it mindset, as a leader, I don't think you'll be successful. I, I just don't see maybe in, in limited circumstances, right? Like, Hey, just do it. But if that's your, if that's your approach to everything and the fire service, that's not going to work for you. Yeah. You know, it's really not. So I think people who, who, you know, say, you know, it's, it's the just do it. It's the just charge in, it's the, you know, push in and put the red, the wet stuff on the red stuff. That's dangerous in this day and age, right? That's really dangerous thinking, and and I tell people this one because I am really lucky I get to talk at FDIC. I've been ta- speaking at FDIC every year at FRI, and I tell people, I'm not I'm not the fire chief that's going to go out there and say don't be aggressive, right? I want aggressive people, aggressive, but there's a difference between being aggressive and being reckless,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think this. And and when you look at the, when you look at the Instagram firefighters and and they, you know, you see a seven second video reel of a fire that's not going well for some organization, everybody who's commenting on there, you don't know anything about it, right? You don't know what that department, what their staffing is like. You don't know what was going on that day. You you don't know, you don't know shit from Ginola, right? Yeah. But you're going to jump in and comment, you know, and like, Hey, Melonhead, don't like that could be you tomorrow. And there's probably a substantial chance it could, it will be you tomorrow. You know, maybe not that type of call, but something's not going to go right for you. And do you want, is it your, is it really your approach that just, just do it? Just, just, we're going to kick the door in and we're going to get this. And it's just, it's dangerous, man. It's a dangerous mentality. And it's, I think it's really fostered by this, this social media culture, um, which is sad. Yeah. And I'm a big social media user. You know that, right? But yeah, I, I don't know. Everybody likes to likes to criticize somebody else for some reason. Well, and I think that that's a you're absolutely
1: right. And social media makes it really easy. Uh, it's so accessible, and there's no little to no consequence. Yeah. If I throw a hate throw a hate bomb on somebody, yeah, um, because their you know climbing angle angle on their ladder was bad, right? Like mind your business. Yeah. Right? You don't know what the setup was. Right. You said all that stuff. It's amazing to me that. People are so quick to pile on to people for stuff that they have no context for. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, it's yeah. awful. Yeah. But, you know, small-minded people like to talk about people <laughs> right, versus ideas. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so this, the name of this podcast is Fireground Fitness. So I would love to hear what when you think of Fireground Fitness, what does
0: it mean to you to be Fireground Fit? Yeah. That's awesome. And, and I'll tell you, since I've gotten to know you, I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts, which, and I think you have some oh, great guests. I listened to one, uh, you talked to, uh, Paige Arnone. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, they, yeah. That was awesome. Um, so, um, to be fire ground fit for me, uh, means to have, means everybody there is mentally, physically ready, has the right equipment, knows their job, knows it well and executes it. That's fireground fitness to me, right? It's not, because you have to remember, I think we lose sight sometimes of why we're here, right? When we get to a fireground, an incident scene, our job is to do the right thing for the person having the emergency, not what feels good for us, not what's going to look you know, what's going to get a plaque on our wall, it's to do the right thing for the person that you're there to serve. And so I think you got to, we, we collectively have to keep that mindset all the time in the forefront. Um, and, and the, and the components of that, like I said, being, you know, mentally and physically ready, knowing the job, being a technical expert at your level and executing it well. Um, and being like, be there for every call. And I get it. I, I ran the calls. I get it. I, I ran the calls at 2 a.m. for the, you know, the, the, the frequent flyer or the, the drug addict or whatever. They're not, no, they're not the people you're going to invite to your Thanksgiving table. Right. But again, I go back to what I said earlier. Well, remember what you said in your interview. Remember the oath you took, like check yourself before you wreck yourself a little bit. And, and if you do that, and even at the fire chief level, right. I got to catch myself. I got to check myself sometimes. Um, and and I ha- thankfully I'm I'm pretty good at it, and I have surrounded myself with people who are maybe better than I would like. <laughs> telling me that, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah. So at, like at all levels, as a fire chief, I feel it's important to be fire ground fit. Right, I I I don't want to be. And I go to a lot of incidents. I, I try to get to as many working incidents as I can. It's a big city. I can't get, you know, I can't teleport myself across town, but, but the ones I can get to, I do and like, be present, be there for your people, right? Don't like, I go to our, our CEs at the Academy. Now, am I, am I throwing ladders and stuff as the fire chief? No, they don't, they don't expect me to do that, but, but I'm there with them, you know, showing face, seeing some of the challenges. It's, it's 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 the more you, the f- the higher you rise up in an organization, and if you ultimately aspire to be a fire chief, and 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 this is this job has been the blessing of my career. I I love being the fire chief here. Um. You have to be, you have to be present all the time, and you and you have to practice what you preach, mm. you know. Uh, and so by by being out there, getting face time, getting into the stations. You know, being willing to listen, listen to the, to the complaints, listen to the, you know, to the because, even though, we're we're quick to say ah, that's just so and so, and that's the way he is or she is, they might have they have a real valid points sometimes, you know, and 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 so hear people's perspectives, um, and that's part of the fire chief's fireground fitness, right? Is being in tune with your organization, never let yourself get out of touch. Doesn't mean you have to be on the trucks every day. You don't gotta. You don't gotta go in the burn can or anything. Don't lose touch with what your organization is doing every day. Yeah. Yeah. I think for a fire chief. That means a lot of listening. It's a lot of listening. It's yeah. a lot of listening and it's a huge time commitment. And candidly, it's it, like the job itself. It's not for everybody. Right. Yeah. Um, you have to have, unless you, you know, there's a, there's a reason a lot of fire chiefs are single, you know? <laughs> um, in my case, I'm very lucky. My wife is super supportive of what I do and she's sometimes it frustrates her, but um, you need that, you know, and you need a network of people. You know, we talked, uh, you've, you've heard, I know you've heard some of the Arizona chiefs talk about it, but just having that professional network of chief officers to, to share just like firefighters do, right. They're yeah. firefighter networks, just like, so chief officers need networks too. And, and you got to have those healthy outlets, uh, and the, and that support. And that's, that's all part of the full fitness picture. I think I love it. Well, Chief, thank you so much for yeah,
1: taking man. some time out of your day and sitting down and sharing your thoughts and ideas with us. Cool. Uh, yeah, really I appreciate
0: pre- it. I'm, I'm honored to be on this with you, man. It's I was really surprised when you asked me to do it, so I'm glad to have done it. Wow. Well, I wasn't surprised. I, <laughs> I love having you. Right
1: on. That's all we got for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Chief Ryan, for sharing some of your time and talents with us. Hey, if you're enjoying the Fireground Fitness Podcast, get on over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the podcast. That helps other folks uh, navigate their way here, et cetera. Leave a comment, leave your feedback. It helps me modify, adjust, make this better for you. In the meantime, think through the lessons you have learned here today. Find a way to employ them into your career, into your life, into your uh, activities of daily living. And you go on out there, and get some.